Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. So last week uh, on Weird House Cinema, we were taking a look at the 1993 live-action Super Mario Brothers movie. I still stand by my characterization, even with a little more time to process, my characterization of it as one of the weirdest movies we've ever covered on the show and one of the weirdest movies I have ever watched. It is still just... Uh, it's bouncing like a pinball in my head. <laughs> but one of the many truly bizarre aspects of that movie was that it had in the role of the villain, King Koopa, none other than the late, great Dennis Hopper. Uh, now, one of the other movies that came up when we were exploring sort of the back catalog of uh, Dennis Hopper's uh, work was a 1966 sci-fi horror film called Queen of Blood. Now, I immediately liked that title. I looked up the poster and I, I liked that too. So my attention was was raised. I kept digging in and I was like, well, we've got to cover this movie. And so here we are. Today we're talking about Queen of Blood, 1966, starring John Saxon, Dennis Hopper, Basil Rathbone, and Florence Marley. Yeah. And I think it would be proper to position this film within a, a trilogy of space vampire movies that we'll, we'll probably get around to watching all of these at one point. Planet of the Vampires from 1965, which we have covered. Mm -hmm. uh, the Mario Bava film, beautiful to behold. Um, it may, maybe a little bit quaaludic at times in its, um, its energy, but, but still great. This film, uh, which carries on the, the vampires of space tradition just one year later, and then eventually we're going to get to Life Force, that being the, the modern uh, version of this tale of, you know, just female and oh, in the case of uh, Planet of the Vampires, male vampires as well. Vampires of, of all gender coming from space, wanting to consume human blood. 
Now, in life force, I don't think it's exactly blood. They just kind of generally want to suck all your life force, basically, your life mm-hmm. energy out and leave you a very withered, skeletal kind of uh, uh, artifact. Yeah. But yes, generally, I agree with this arc. That, uh, and I'm going to say of the three movies, the one we're talking about today is by far the least of them, but uh, not without its pleasures. So we can talk about the <laughs> the kind of weird uh, jigsaw puzzle that is this film. But overall, I, I did enjoy it. It raises a question, though, which is that of all the movies we've ever done on Weird House, which one do you think is comprised to the largest extent of pre-existing footage? It's got to be this one, right? It's got to be this one by by a long shot. So to, to explain this to anyone who's not familiar with this film, and I think most people are not familiar with this film, uh, it includes a lot of footage, especially effects footage, from the 1959 Soviet science fiction film Nebo Zovyat, a film that the producer of this movie, Roger Corman, who, of course, you're familiar with from past episodes, had purchased the U.S. distribution rights for. Uh, he even roped in a young Francis Ford Coppola who worked on some re-editing. They apparently added some monster scenes for U.S. audiences and released it as Battle Beyond the Sun. Um, this movie also reuses footage from 1963's uh, Mechta Nevstrechu, A Dream Come True, another Soviet science fiction film. So these are these are both, I, I've not seen either of these in their entirety, uh, but they are essentially big budget prestige sci-fi films from the Soviet Union. And uh, here, footage from them is reused for a low budget Roger Corman produced uh, sci-fi spectacle, you know, that's part that's going to be released as part of a double feature. Now, I was trying to think of a name for what you would call this genre of movie genre, not in terms of the uh, not in terms of the story content, but in terms of the way it came about. And to borrow a phrase from the uh, at least the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons, I'm going to to call this an attack of opportunity film. Yeah, Uh, it is a film that comes about because you have some opportunity in terms of production capability. Maybe you suddenly own rights to a bunch of footage and you can try to figure out how to build a movie around that footage like we have in in the case of this movie today. But there are other such examples. There are cases where like um, we have a very famous actor on hand for, you know, two more days. Can we do something with them uh, that we can build the rest of a movie around later? Or maybe we have access to sets that have been used in another movie or props that have been used in another movie. And uh, can we quickly throw something together to make use of that? It's sort of an efficiency based approach to uh, cinematic storytelling. Yeah, I think I've heard uh, director Robert Rodriguez speak to to this as well. You know, like seeing what you have, what do you, what what do you have at your disposal that you can utilize, and using that kind of as the skeleton to build up what you're going to create, especially if you're dealing with limited budget. What is? I feel like we talked about another movie recently where there was like a big star who was already on on call, having filmed another movie, and they had him for like a couple more days, and so they made something that we watched. Does that ring a bell for you? Oh, it does ring a bell. Um, I feel like that's been the case in, uh, with with various actors. Like, well, I, I guess I'm going to stay in Rome for uh, another week. Love it here. Uh, you have a movie for me to work on? You know, yeah. that sort of thing. I feel like that specific example has come up, but I don't recall which film and which star it was. This is how you get discount Boris Karloff. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, so in in the case of Queen of Blood, it's not like an an actor or some sets they had access to. It was pre-existing footage. So we've got a bunch of shots that are already part of another movie. But fortunately, most of our audience will not have seen that movie. And the footage looks pretty dang good. So what if we could just sort of like figure out how to build a narrative around these shots we have? Also, I think they have the same space helmets. I did some some pausing of the film because I was really distracted by the difference differences between these two uh, uh, obvious lines of footage uh, while yeah. watching the film. And I was like, are they even using the same space helmets or do they just get the color right? And it looks like they're the same helmets or they're such an accurate recreation that it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'll give them credit for that. But there there's so many other things that you just can't reproduce. I feel like I would have noticed it even if I did not read about the background of the film, because uh, number one, like the art style is totally different. Like all of the the pre-existing footage has a much more uh, beautifully, lusciously realized kind of character to it. Uh, the scenes that are actually shot directly for this film are much more bare, bare bones in terms of sets and stuff. But also it's just totally different in terms of like the film grain and things like the shots just mm-hmm. don't really match. But, you know, it's OK. <laughs> you slot them in there and you can make a movie. And I knew this was coming. I knew this was one of the, the notable things about this film. But I wasn't prepared for just how much they were going to dump in. Like I, I my mind instantly turns to a single episode of Night Gallery. Uh, from the early 70s, there's an episode called The Different Ones, or rather it's a segment from an episode called The Different Ones, and it's a science fiction story that involves characters traveling from one planet to the to the next. And in syndication, they had to expand its runtime a bit, so they inserted spaceship shots from 1972's Silent Running. Uh, Silent Running, great motion picture. We have a, I think we have a podcast episode, pre-Weird House, dealing with it to some extent. Um but in, in in that particular instance, you know, it was very forgivable and you can easily gloss over it because it's like, okay, we're exterior spaceship. Here's a shot from Silent Running. You just go with it. Um, and I was expecting it to be more like that with this film. That like, okay, whenever we see an exterior of a spaceship, it's going to be uh, scenes from one of these uh, Russian films. But that's not the case. It's all sorts of stuff. It's just so much stock or in this case, reused footage uh, dropped into the first hour. It's like when you let a, an eight-year-old put their own syrup on their pancakes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and th- there are a few things that you can actually catch, especially if you have a pause button available to you. One of which uh, is there's a scene where Basil Rathbone is giving a speech to a big assembled crowd, and then it does a cutaway to show the whole room. And I guess it's still supposed to be him speaking, but it's not actually him in the shot. And then in this room, there's a great statue of like a god or at least a a muscled nude male figure. And he's holding something in his hand. And what he's holding is Sputnik. The, the the Russian the the Soviet spacecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of details like that. It's almost as if they were like, "Look, the kids are just going to be making out for the first hour of this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't have to stress too much about it." Uh, and and ultimately, like that's how it feels. It feels like the first hour of the film. Once you press through that, you have a, a kind of tight little thirty minute story <laughs> that, to enjoy and some nice acting and uh, and and so forth. But you've but at least for for me, I really had to press through that first hour. I agree. Yeah, th- there's a lot of padding, but th- there are some moments in that first hour that I think are actually extremely effective. And we can explain more about those when we 
get into the plot. But yeah, there's a lot of you know, Basil Rathbone talking and it's not that interesting or just like seeing rockets blast off or shoot through space. That's not that great either. Uh, but uh, a lot of the, the footage from the Soviet films is beautiful and sometimes it is used to, uh, uh, I think, great effect. I would say of the original stuff in the movie, probably the best for me was all basically Florence Marley, who plays the uh, the main alien character in the film. Oh, yeah. yeah she doesn't say a single word, but uh, but she has she, she emotes really well with her eyes and, and, uh, and her eyebrows, especially. Yeah, her eyes, the her teeth and the corners of her mouth do more acting mm-hmm. than than most people do with with a hundred lines of dialogue. Yeah. Nice uh, space vampire smirk. All right. Well, um, the, uh, the other fun thing about this is this is one of those movies that takes us into the future, the far future of 1990. <laughs> so that's that was that was pretty fun as well. The narrator actually says it. It's the first thing you hear in the film is the, the year is 1990. <laughs> all right. Um, my elevator pitch for this one's pretty simple. Space Vampire 66. That's all you need to know. It's just 1966. And this is a space vampire movie coming out of 66. Though it's also interesting that in many respects, it's kind of a it feels more old fashioned than 66. It feels a lot of the energy of this film is maybe more in line with what we might expect from the 1950s. So yeah. um, it's uh, yeah interesting to think about that. And we'll discuss that as we proceed. Let's go ahead and hear that trailer. Queen of Blood. A tantalizing, mystifying enigma. She's gorged herself of fresh blood. She's a monster. We have a good supply of blood plasma with us. We'll use that to feed her. And if we run out of plasma, Commander? If you want to watch Queen of Blood, well, it's currently streaming. I know it's streaming on Prime. We watched it there. I think it's streaming on some other sources. Uh, It's also available on DVD from MGM's uh, Limited Collection. Um, There's also a Blu-ray from Kino Lorber and Scorpion releasing, though it doesn't seem to be widely available right now. It may be out of print or something, but I wasn't able to get my hands on that one. Uh, But it looks like it has possibly some extras on it. Mm. All right, getting into the people behind this film, because ultimately the, the, some of the, the, the cast and crew here are what like, kind of push the movie over the edge for me. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm already interested in the, in the, the concept and the, you know, the time period. But uh, then I started reading about the director and writer of this, Curtis Harrington, who lived 1926 through 2007. 
I wasn't uh, familiar with with his work prior, but um, Curtis Harrington was a respected Hollywood director, a film critic, an experimental filmmaker who played an important role, apparently, in rediscovering James Whale during the 1950s. James Whale, of course, the director of such pictures as Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. It's hard for me to imagine that James Whale ever would have been like a, a forgotten filmmaker. As long as I've been aware of him, I was aware of him with kind of icon status. Yeah, I, I, I thought of it the same way, but I was reading about this in uh, Harrington's obit in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, they're, they're quoting Dennis Bartok, a producer and screenwriter, who says that that Whale had been, quote, pretty much forgotten by everybody at this time during the last um, you know decade or less of Whale's life. Uh, so uh, fascinating detail there. Hmm. So uh, anyway, back to Harrington. Following a string of experimental short films, his first feature was 1961's Night Tide, which also starred Dennis Hopper, apparently in his first leading role as a man who falls in love with a mysterious woman who performs as a mermaid at the local carnival. Hmm. I've not seen it, but it's one of Harrington's best known films and uh, is apparently apparently very well regarded for its sort of darkly fantastic elements. It's supposed to be a a rather, rather nice film. It was a Corman production, and he followed that movie up with two features for Corman, utilizing big budget sci-fi footage that Corman had gotten his hands on uh, from uh, the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those films were Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet in 65 and Queen of Blood in 66. Harrington's late 60s, early 70s period contains several macabre films, including 67's Games with James Caan, 71's What's the Matter with Helen, starring Debbie Reynolds, 72's Whoever Slew Annie Rue, um, I guess this is the, the, the question title uh, period of his work. Star, this mm-hmm. one starred Shelley Winters. There's 73's The Killing Kind, and then mostly TV episodes and TV movies after that, but with some intriguing titles like 73's The Cat Creature and 78's Devil Dog, The Hound of Hell, <laughs> not to be confused with 1977's Dracula's Dog. Is that like they ran out of son of Dracula, daughter of Dracula, cousin of Dracula, and they work all the way down to Dracula's dog? Dracula's dog. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the they should have followed it up with Devil Dog versus Dracula's dog, but mm-hmm. they didn't. Anyway, there are also two theatrical films in the later mix there. There's 77's Ruby, a supernatural thriller starring uh, Piper Laurie, and 1985's um, Matahari, a historical erotic melodrama starring Sylvia Crystal, best known for the Emmanuel films. So Harrington's work is is frequently explored in scholarship surrounding queer cinema, though I believe much of this is contextual, as I'm not sure that any of his films have expressly gay characters, though Harrington himself was openly gay and, and wrote about it in his autobiography. Mm-hmm. But Queen of Blood, well, um, I, I can only imagine this is not the best example of his work, but I do feel like when Harrington actually has time to build something here, again, mostly in the, the, the last 30 minutes or so of the picture, it mostly works. Like he's able to make use of good actors uh, to, and, uh, and also effectively build a certain amount of tension. Oh, I fully agree. I would say on one hand, yes, this is the least of the three space vampire films you mentioned. 
But also, I mean, how could it be anything other than that, given the circumstances? Like, mm-hmm. this is an attack of opportunity film. It is an efficiency project. You're, you're trying to build something mostly on the basis of stock footage or not stock, you know, pre-existing footage. So it is, uh, it's a difficult task. And I think this movie, given that, actually has, is much better than it has any right to be. Oh, absolutely. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right. The cast of this baby is also pretty interesting. We got John Saxon uh, playing Alan Brenner, our lead astronaut. Saxon with 1936 through 2020. He's a Weird House Cinema staple. Um, we've profiled on the show, I want to say three or four times at this point. Uh, so I'm not going to go in into a lot of detail regarding Saxon, but he Wait, was a former team. I'm yeah. trying to remember what were the other. Sh- we did the cannibal movie. But what were the other John Saxon movies? Uh, well, the, yes, there was the cannibal movie. There was um, um, Hands of Steel, in which he's one of the villains. <laughs> yes, Hands of Steel. Okay. There's something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Okay, we can move on. Sorry. I just 
was was troubled that I couldn't remember the others. Okay, at least two. That that gets me there. That every few weeks there's at least one John Saxon film we were considering, uh, especially from his seventies period, you know. But uh, at any rate, Saxon's definitely come up on the show before. I'm just blanking on some of the other ones he may have uh, we may have discussed him in. Uh huh. But Saxon was a, a former teen idol, and he'd been acting since the mid fifties at this point, and had and had already worked with Mario Bava on 63's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, and uh, Otto uh, Preminger on 63's The Cardinal. He'd appeared alongside a young Robert Redford in the 1962 war film War Hunt, which I've read is uh, is quite good. Uh, he plays a soldier in that who also happens to be like a serial murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Saxon would really come into his own, like I say, and more in like the 1970s, I think. I think most of the the pictures one is drawn to for John Saxon are going to be from that period. So he's maybe a little young here. He's not completely green. But on the other hand, he's also playing a character who feels like he's been extracted more or less from a 1950s sci-fi adventure, you know? Yeah. Um, he's still better in this sort of bland role than a lot of the square jaw leads that you find in those 50s sci-fi films, but it still has a lot in common with that. Yeah, I think there's not much to this role. He is the leading man, and he is, uh, to use a term I often used to describe leading men from 50s uh, genre movies, he, he's kind of a rectangle. Like the, yeah. He's just there to be the masculine energy of rectitude, uh, according to the logic of the film. Uh, and yet it's still it's subdued compared to some of the earlier examples. Like he, I don't think he ever punches anybody. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he does. He does spend the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of the movie arguing for the destruction of something with everybody else being like, oh, no, it's fine. We don't have to destroy mm-hmm. it. <laughs> All right. You mentioned him already, but uh, Basil Rathbone is in this playing Dr. Faraday. Uh, Rathbone lived 19, I mean, sorry, 1892 through 1967. Uh, this was one of his final film performances, but he had a long career of stage and screen. He was a South African-born English actor who served in the First World War and started f- appearing in films in the early 20s. He played uh, Guy of Gisborne in 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood. He played Sherlock Holmes in 14 Hollywood films between 38 and 46. He appeared in various swashbucklers. Uh, he stayed active on the stage and won a, and won a Tony Award in 1948 for The Heiress. And he was nominated for two Oscars uh, for 1939's If I Were King and 1937's Romeo and Juliet, in which he played Tybalt uh, opposite Leslie Howard as Romeo and Norma Shearer as Juliet. Mm. He played Baron Von Wolf in 1939's Son of Frankenstein. That was the third universal Frankenstein film uh, uh, with Karloff and Lugosi in it. But I think there's kind of a drop off after the first. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, this one was not James Whale, was it? No, no, no. I think Br- Bride is definitely the peak for me. Bride is the peak. Now, Rathbone definitely made his mark in horror and noir stories, especially later in his career. Just to name a few films of note here, at least to us, 56, The Black Sleep, co-starring Lon Chaney Jr., Bella Lugosi, and John Carradine. 62 is The Magic Sword. That's a, a fun fantasy film that was featured on MST3K back in the day. Uh, Roger Corman's Tales of Terror, starring Vincent Price and Peter Lorre. 63 is The Comedy of Terror, starring Price, Lorre, and Karloff. Uh, then we have 65's Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, this movie. Uh, there's also uh, 66's The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini and 1967's Hillbillies in a Haunted House. I just had to check something real quick, but yes, The Magic Sword in 62 was directed by Bert I. Gordon. 
that's a fun one. That's a fun. I would come back for that one. It's got a fun cast. Some ma- it's for the kids. It's a fairy tale movie. It's great. Yes. Now I will say of Basil Rathbone in this movie. I think you know it's, he does what is asked of him, but this is this is certainly not his best work. It's kind of a monotonous exposition role. He makes a lot of bureaucratic statements on behalf of the space institution. Uh, seems kind of underused to me. Yeah, he, he he's fun at the end. It's going to be fun to discuss his yes. final few yes. moments. All right. We also have a character named Laura James, played by Judy Meredith, who lived 1936 through 2014. Best known for this movie, Shirley Temple's Storybook in 58, and Jack the Giant Killer in 62. Mostly a TV player. Uh, she was also the longtime wife of Gary Nelson, who lived 34 through 2022, who directed 1979's The Black Hole. Now, I was looking at Judy Meredith's uh, 2014 obituary in The Oregonian, and this had an interesting story. It said that at the age of 15, she briefly became a professional ice skater participating Mm -hmm. in the Ice Follies, uh, which was some kind of touring ice show that would sometimes feature like uh, Olympic ice skaters, but also had various performances such as uh, the Swiss comedy ice skating duo Frick and Frack. Do you know Frick and Frack, (laughs) Rob? Uh, I feel like maybe I've heard allusions to Frick and Frack, but I didn't know who they were. Like maybe there's an old MST3K joke about Frick and Frack, but uh, boy, look at them. There they are. I had no idea there was any such thing as a comedy ice skating duo. Which one has the the mustache? Which one looks like G. Gordon Liddy? I don't know, but that, that's got to be Frack, huh? <laughs> no, maybe it's Frick. I, I really couldn't say. But so I wonder, I haven't seen the routine. Is it like a Three Stooges thing where they're poking each other in the eyes and bopping on the top of the head, but they're ice skating? I mean, one assumes if you're in the middle of an ice skating rink and you're trying to portray comedy to the audience, it's got to be pretty broad, right? Yeah, it got to be kind of physical. Yeah, you got to pad that butt for this act, I'm guessing. But anyway, sorry. Yes, Judy Meredith. So she briefly participated in the Ice Follies until she suffered a major skiing accident. And this put an end to her ice skating career. After this, she focused on acting in theater and was uh, apparently discovered by the comedian George Burns when she was performing at the Pasadena Playhouse. Uh, This led to a role on the half-hour TV comedy show he presented with Gracie Allen. And then this, uh, in turn, led to more TV and film roles, including Queen of Blood. But it looks like a lot of, you know, the kind of stuff, the 60s stuff, westerns. Now, there was a line from the obit that struck me uh, as interesting. It said that uh, Judy Meredith sort of created the opportunity for her husband, Gary Nelson, to have a directing career because she agreed to star in the TV show Have Gun, Will Travel for free, but only if Gary would be allowed to direct. (laughs) That's a move. Yeah. So without her intervention, we might not have gotten to the point of the black hole. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, we may have to do Black Hole at some point. I can't get my family to watch it with me. Um, so I'm going to have to revisit it on my own at some point. <laughs> so you're going to make me watch it with you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. Uh, but yeah, to come back to, uh, I like Judy Meredith in this. Uh, again, uh, kind of like Basil Rathbone here. I feel like uh, she's a little bit kind of underused by the script, uh, but she's she's got good spunk in her scenes. And also, like Basil Rathbone's character, 
uh, it becomes fun in the last 10 minutes or so when she's kind yeah. of just like arguing with John Saxon about whether or not we should let these aliens uh, uh, completely drink all our blood. I agree. She's, she, you, she doesn't have as much to do, but you see the charisma sparkling through the performance, which is nice. And you know what, actually, so I've said that about the last two actors. I'll also say that about Dennis Hopper. Uh, he's good in this, but kind of underused. This is the most subdued I have ever seen Dennis Hopper. Yeah, it's interesting because this is, yeah, this is not Dennis Hopper as a villain or a wild man. I I feel like he says daddy-o or something at some point, in this <laughs> picture, which felt like an ad lib. And yeah. maybe, the, but, um, but aside from that, there's not a lot of what you might expect from Dennis Hopper. He plays this kind of kind and sensitive astronaut character that's like really, you know, trying to connect with the, um, they don't know it at the time, but this alien vampire who they brought on board. They make him a writer, so he. There's a part where uh, I don't remember exactly what he says. We can explore that later. But he, he's like giving a an update on the ship's log, and they're like, "Wow, Jack Kerouac, nice work." Yeah. <laughs> All right, so yeah, Dennis Hopper playing Paul Grant here. He lived uh, 1936 to 2010. We profiled him last week on the Super Mario Brothers episode, so we're not going to go into all that all that again. But just to put it in context, Queen of Blood hits just the year before 67's Cool Hand Luke and The Trip, uh, as well as, of course, 68's Head, 69's Easy Rider. So, uh, you know, it's like a lot of big stuff was about to happen for Hopper. Um, but he'd still had over a, a decade's TV and film experience at this point, though mostly in smaller roles. As we mentioned earlier, Harrington gave Hopper his first starring role in 1961's Night Tide, and Hopper apparently always spoke well of him um, due to that, you know, that break uh, that the, that film gave him, but also his experiences on that film. He felt like Harrington, like, gave him the room he needed to, you know, to, to, to craft his performance and just overall spoke well of him as a director. Well, that's nice. And it makes me want to see that other movie. But Dennis Hopper, I'm just going to say he's on his best behavior in this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but... So the last three actors, I, I said, I felt kind of underused, all talented, but eh, maybe they, they, they weren't given enough uh, attention. Maybe their roles weren't given enough oomph in the script. I don't think I would say that about Florence Marley. She gets some close-up time. Oh, yeah. Just straight up coming at the camera with, uh, with glowing eyes and that face. Um, she doesn't actually have any lines in the movie, but, uh, but it's a very charismatic physical performance. Yeah, doesn't need a line. She speaks, she's doing everything psychically. So yeah, Florence Marley playing on IMDb, it's credited as Alien Queen. In the, the, the post credits for the film, it's just Florence Marley as question mark. Like she doesn't even have a name. <laughs> and the new Mysterians. Yeah, she uh, was. She was lived 1919 through 1978. Czech-born actress who made her mark in European film in the 30s and 40s, uh, in such movies as 48's uh, Krakatit and 47's The Damned. Before making the move to Hollywood after the Second World War, she appeared in such American movies as 49's Tokyo Joe, opposite Humphrey Bogart, 57's Undersea Girl. I know that was the title that. Uh, that got your attention. Like, what does that consist of? Is she a mermaid? Is she like in a wetsuit? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't know. Um, she also uh, had a, uh, she was on a number of TV series as well, including the original Twilight Zone. Now, like other actors of the mid 20th century that we've discussed, she was impacted by the House on American Activities Committee's uh, blacklist, though it turns out that in, in her circumstances, it was due to a, a case of mistaken identity. And even though this was eventually cleared up, uh, the damage to her career was done at that point. 
This was one of the last handful of films she worked on, though she she later appeared in 1973's Dr. Death, Seeker of Souls, and the 1976 film The Astrologer, which I've heard great things about. It's supposed to be kind of like a, a weird, rediscovered classic. Hmm. She also apparently, and I'm going off of various databases and, and so forth for this, she apparently wrote and starred in a short film sequel of sorts to this movie titled what? Space Boy, yes, with an electronic score by uh, Bibi and, Lu- and Louis Barron of the Forbidden Planet, of Forbidden Planet fame. Um, and this would have been in 1973. I see various mentions of it. It's listed in the databases. I can, but I find no actual like footage of it anywhere. I don't see any indication that it was included as an extra on anything or compiled anywhere. It's it's almost like it's it's listed in error uh, or it's a lost film entirely. I'm not sure what the story is here. If you have Space Boy, send it to us. Upload now. Give us a link. I've got to see this because yeah. I I love Florence Marley in this movie. Of of the original footage, she makes the film. Absolutely. All right. Uh, another actor in this, I wasn't even going to mention them because before we watched it, I was thinking, oh, this is the fourth crewman on the ship. He's just going to die. He's not going to be that interesting. But uh, I actually found the performance kind of fun. Uh, this is Robert Boone as Anders Brockman. He's like the practical older guy on the on the vessel uh, mm-hmm. who says things like, well, how different is it? You know, drinking blood from just enjoying a, a you know, a, a nice a rare steak. It's, it's not that different. We shouldn't be quick to judge that sort of thing. This is right after the alien has drained all of Dennis Hopper's blood. Yeah. And this guy gives a speech about like, well, hold on now. Let's not judge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's just murdered um, his, his crewmate at this point. But at any rate, uh, this actor lived 1916 through 2015. Dutch born actor, actor from the late 40s through the early 80s. And you look at this guy's uh, credits. He started off playing a lot of German soldiers and so forth. Uncredited in war films. And I mean a lot of them. It's an impressive list of like German soldier, uncredited and so forth. But he eventually starts getting better, uh, better parts. He shows up on a couple episodes of the classic Twilight Zone. Um, same year, he's an uncredited player in Hitchcock's Torn Curtain. Mostly TV work follows, but I read that he uh, served as a member of the Motion Picture Academy's Foreign Language Nominating Committee. So um, yeah, it, this is his most well-known film, but he's also it's it's not just an invisible role in the movie. Like I don't know, I, I kind of like this character. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, now it's it's worth noting I didn't actually mark him uh, in this because he would have been a, a bit younger. But Forrest J. Ackerman plays Faraday's aide in this, um, lived nineteen sixteen through two thousand and eight. This is the father of sci-fi fandom, an uh, avid collector of sci-fi memorabilia. He was also the founding editor and principal writer of the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland and was a literary agent for such authors as Ray Bradbury and L. Ron Hubbard. I think this is the guy Basil Rathbone is talking to when he has just gotten a radio update saying everybody on the ship is dead except for John Saxon and Judy Meredith. And then he turns to this guy and he's like, things are going very poorly on that ship. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably him. Yeah. Uh, this is also kind of interesting. Uh, Gary Kurtz was a production manager on this picture. Um, mm. This is, of course, the, the future producer of the first two Star Wars movies, The Dark Crystal and Return to Oz. He lived 1940 through 2018. Um, he's notable because you've, if you've watched any documentaries about the making of the first two Star Wars movies or The Dark Crystal, um, 
he's the guy with the uh, whaler's beard, the kind of Abraham Lincoln beard who talks in a very, has a very serious um, tone to his voice and, uh, and, and always has some interesting things to say about the production. Um, that, that's him, the production manager on this, this movie. Wow. And then finally, the music is by Ronald Stein, who lived 1930 through 1988, composer who worked on a lot of low-budget films, particularly for American International Pictures. His credits include It Conquered the World, Not of This Earth, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Dementia 13, and more, including The Rain People, Coppola's picture prior to The Godfather. Wow, he's right in our zone. Yeah. He's probably come up before and... um uh, and if we just don't remember him, I mean, the music in this is not completely unforgettable. It has some nice uh, kind of uh, haunting little bits that have a bit of a night gallery feel to them uh, that I liked. But in other places, it's just more traditional. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right, Joe, are you ready to jump into the plot here? 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So one thing that I, as far as I know, was not imported from the Soviet films, I think this may be original, is the beautiful art behind the opening credits. Yeah, I, as far as I know, this is original. And it uh, this is definitely was the section of the film starts off strong for me because it does feel very night gallery-esque. It, this looks like the kind of thing that... Um, uh, that would be on one of the night gallery paintings. And the music also has that kind of eerie vibe to it, like firmly establishing that, yes, you're going to see a lot of space stuff, but this movie is going to, at heart, be spooky in one way or another. Yeah, so all of this stuff is attributed to an artist named John Klein, who I wasn't otherwise familiar with. But as the credits roll, we shuffle through kind of uh, lightly representative, but mostly abstract illustrations with uh, a psychedelic stained glass effect. Uh, and I thought it might be fun to try to describe some of these images. First, there is a uh, kind of a psilocybin Yule lad butterfly with a beard <laughs> made out of rainbow colored tumors. Then there is a two headed witch king of Angmar, but he is chained in the Jacob Marley fashion with 16 dimensional Mardi Gras beads. And in the background, there are some mountains and twin moons. After this, there is a giant pink root vegetable nostril with a wing that has bones for feathers. Then there is a scene of multicolored gravel eggs hatching into spoon plants at the base of a mountain made out of dog paws. <laughs> this is when it says Dennis Hopper, by the way. <laughs> After that, it's blood volcano leaking more gravel eggs and Mandelbrot fissures into the air while uh, there are these white pale vines that reach up toward the black sun, more bone wings, more blood planets. Uh, there's one where there's sort of the top right corner of the screen kind of looks like the Punisher logo version of a bunny rabbit, but with <laughs> Terminator eyes. And then there's a bunch of circuit board components under the rabbit's jaw. Um, background for the title of the movie, I would describe as a DMT Furby with a city skyline inside its hairdo. Maybe I'll stop there. There is more. But uh, in general, I think this is all good stuff. Puts one in an alien mood, goes well with theremin music, uh, suggests that we may be in for sights beyond our comprehension. And as much as I love Florence Marley, I don't think the movie will be quite as psychedelic as the credits uh, imply. But after the credits, we get a star field, eerie strings playing, and the narrator says, what did we say it was going to be? The year 1990. <laughs> uh, it says, the problem of traveling to the moon has been solved for many years. Note that this movie was in 66. The first human moon landing was in 69. So that's, you know, this comes out at a time when humans had not yet walked on the moon. Narrator says, space stations have been built there and authorized personnel come and go as they wish. Of, of slight note here, 2001, A Space Odyssey wouldn't come out for another couple of years. So um, I don't know. It's like I think all science fiction depicting travel within our own solar system, like near future space travel in our solar system, you almost have to judge it in terms of before 2001 or post 2001. Yeah, agree. But so in these shots, we, of course, see the moon. We see tiny ships zooming past and a shot of the surface with rockets posed upright in uh, this kind of rocky, shadowy landscape. And the narrator goes on. It says, uh, but the moon is a dead world. And the great question about space still remains. Does life exist on another planet? To seek an answer to this question, the major powers of the world have been preparing at the International Institute of Space Technology to explore the planets Venus and Mars. And here we cut to shots of a kind of hip institutional campus with a bit of modern architecture flair. People are walking along in the sidewalks and 
Rob, did you notice that they're all stepping in sync with each other? It kind of makes a point of showing this, and I wondered why. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's just everyone's on the same page when it comes to space technology, I guess. Yeah. Well, anyway, we cut inside, and why? Here's John Saxon. Look at his posture. It's really good. (laughs) He enters a door labeled Astro Communications, which is in a very strange font. Do you remember the font on the door label? It's sort of the font one would find on the record sleeve of the band Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a little weird. But it's the future. It's 1990. So John Saxon, I think his character's name is Alan Brenner, is here to pick up a lady to go to lunch. And this is Judy Meredith playing an astronaut and communication specialist named Laura James. She's like, um, I don't know about lunch. I'm kind of busy. I'm picking up a radio broadcast from another planet, unlike anything we've ever heard for, uh, before. It may be our first confirmation of intelligent life anywhere else in the universe. Uh, but yeah, OK, let's go to lunch. <laughs> She's just like, Bill, will you record this alien broadcast for me? I'll check it out later. I mean, it's pinwheel day at the cafeteria, so you got to go. <laughs> but no, it's... Um, what do what do they actually say they're eating? I mean, it looks disgusting. It looks like a kind of burned waffle. <laughs> but before we see them at lunch, so they leave and we're seeing like the equipment in the Earth-based uh, communications lab. And we hear the droning of the signal from the other planet and the droning of the signal becomes louder. And we cut into space and we zoom toward the surface of a pale green planet. And then we see the surface. We're on it. There are crashing waves in the foreground against a horizon with giant spires of rock that are taller than the top of a looming moon. And then... um, and then we see a giant ball of wires that's uh, maybe the thing that is sending out the signal. And inside that ball of wires, I guess it's a building, we see what must be aliens. There are humanoid bodies standing in the shadows. It's very dark inside, and they're manipulating machinery to guide a beam of turquoise light as it sweeps across space. Like, are they beaming a signal toward us? We see hands reaching out for a series of darkened orbs topped by prismatic triangles. And then cut to John Saxon and Laura having lunch. <laughs> yeah, this, um, this, this whole segment, of course, on the alien planet is, is all footage from the Soviet productions that uh, are, are sampled here. And it was, I don't know, I was distracted just thinking about, like, w- w- did we need to see any of this? Like, mm. if the, like, the causation of filmmaking is kind of messed up here because, like, would you create this footage for use in the film you know, does it actually serve an important purpose in in the narrative or is it really what we have here where it's just like, well, we have it. We should show what this other planet is, even though we're never actually going to visit it. But we should just show it to them because we have, you know, minutes worth of footage. I agree. It is a tough question. Like it removes any sense of mystery here. And it doesn't really add anything narratively to the film, but particularly in one segment coming up in a few minutes, I think it does actually have a, a very good uh, uh, affected achieving a mood, but we'll we'll get to that. So first, we're going to meet a few Earthling characters. Again, uh, Alan and Laura are having lunch. Alan is complaining that the astronaut food tastes really bad. They're calling it exobiologic food. And he likes banana splits on Earth better. And then these two guys named Tony and Paul come to sit down with them. All the dudes, by the way, are dressed the same. Khaki pants, yellow shirt, slightly puffy jacket with a pattern that looks like a mattress cover. And then uh, we, have, we have Dennis Hopper here. On He sits down on the left. His name is Paul. We learn from conversation that John Saxon is scheduled to travel to Mars. And then we get Dennis Hopper's first line, which is, 
What's the latest scuttlebutt there, Tony baby? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Dennis Hopper, ladies and gentlemen. I think this is the line where you said he may have been ad-libbing. I, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> what were we saying beforehand? It's like, imagining him doing the, the voice in the trailer is saying like, space, man, it's a real bad trip. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been a great tagline, especially if this movie had been made just like two years later. Yeah. But we should clarify nothing about Dennis Hopper's look or performance in this movie is is shaggy, dangerous hippie. Instead, he comes off very he's very clean cut and conventionally handsome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I should also so a couple other things. You mentioned the uniforms. I do have to drive home. These are not the uniforms in this film are not on the same level at all with Planet of the Vampires. I mean, the colors match, everything has a certain uniformity to it, but high fashion is not in play. Um, I also feel like this, uh, this lunch scene, uh, everyone was very animated for this sequence. I don't know if they just had a lot of fun (laughs) setting around, if there was a lot of cutting up in between Mm -hmm. takes, uh, but uh, everyone seemed, seemed really happy to be on set for this one. I agree. Yeah. Spirits are high, but their lunch is interrupted by an announcement on the loudspeaker. It's calling everybody to gather in area one for an important announcement. Uh, the dudes get up and they say, that means us. But the announcement literally says all personnel. So I don't know why they say that. But on the way, uh, John Saxon, he's asking Laura, he's like, hey, have you ever imagined you'd be getting married on a rocket ship to Mars? So apparently they're uh, I guess they're engaged. Zero G wedding, though. Sounds it sounds exciting. Oh, that'd be very cool. Yes. Uh, So the meeting place is outdoors and the background here is a gigantic sculpture. It's bigger than the Statue of Liberty. It's huge. And it's a goddess leaping into the air with arms outstretched. And there's a ringed planet at her feet. Kind of reminds me of the uh, the winged victory of Samothrace. Mm -hmm. But here we get an announcement from Basil Rathbone. He's playing Dr. Faraday, kind of the big boss at this place. And he says, my friends and fellow workers in the great adventure of space, I have the most important news to announce since our first successful landing on the moon 20 years ago. As many of you know, for several weeks now, we've been receiving organized signals from a far galaxy. This morning, our code experts finally deciphered the message these signals contained. It is a most extraordinary document. It's very long. And then he explains he's not going to read the the whole thing, but that it means the aliens uh, dispatched a spaceship containing an ambassador who will come to Earth and live with us here since our atmosphere will support their form of life. Faraday says that the entire world will await the arrival of the alien ambassador with the keenest anticipation and everybody applauds. But as the applause dies out, we fade back to visions of the other world. So we see again the waves crashing on uh, on night's Plutonian shore. And we see the towers of rock and the beings moving about in the shadows of their weird castles filled with unrecognizable technology. There are pipes and hoses and big old spheres that themselves seem to contain stars. And there's no dialogue and no music, just the shrill droning of the radio signal that's beaming out to Earth. And I actually think that these scenes of the alien planet, especially the way that they are intercut with the scenes of brightly lit, noisy gatherings and social activity on Earth, are extremely effective. It's very moody and disconcerting the way it goes from like the crowd at the uh, at the Institute to the planet and that nobody's saying anything. They're just moving around in the shadows, uh, manipulating technology that we can't even understand. 
Yeah, I think you're right. It visually drives home this feeling that's later brought up in dialogue to some extent, like this idea of like, we really don't know what these other beings consist of, like not only like their, their, their biology, but also their society. Like what, what is it they value? What do they want? And what does it mean that they're sending an ambassador to us? Yeah, everything we see of them is silent, methodical, wordless, almost emotionless, just movements in the dark. So despite the limitations imposed by relying so much on pre-existing footage to construct this film, I think it is used to great effect in some sequences, and this is one of them. This part I thought was actually excellent. Agreed, agreed. But then on the then we get some more kind of like launch footage and that stuff is less interesting. But uh, on the alien planet, we see this giant spherical ship rise up out of an underground bay and the crew rides a tram up to board it. Uh, We only see the crew members. We see the vaguely humanoid shapes, but only at the distance. So you never like get a close up. And in the distance, they're kind of waving goodbye to a crowd again silently. There's there's no local sound, just the droning signal. And then they blast off into space. Yeah, it's a cool-looking ship. The, these, the, the circuit, the, the, the spherical ship with the kind of halo around it, this is from 1963's uh, Mechta Nav Strachu. Uh, so uh, it, it looks good, but yeah, it's, it's made by, by other hands. Then back on Earth, we see a giant television ball appearing in the sky over the Institute with a dude delivering the news. <laughs> He's like wearing a suit and tie. He's explaining how scientists have detected a ship approaching Earth, bringing aliens from, quote, a distant galaxy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay, as I've said before, I can always suspend disbelief, and that's this is fine, but... Note to sci-fi writers, if you care about being realistic at all, the space between galaxies is immense. I think if if you want to have aliens, they should be from another star in our galaxy, not from another galaxy. Yeah, unless you're you know dealing with a far future um, interstellar empire sort of scenario, then you can maybe get into these distant galaxy ideas. But even then, like the galaxy is big enough, there's still room for discoveries and surprises and so forth. Yes. Also, the guy in the the TV ball, his lips are not matching the words he's saying, which Mm -hmm. makes me think this is also part of the Soviet uh, film package. Yeah. But he says astronomers have determined that an unknown object has passed the orbit of the moon and is rapidly approaching Earth. It is not the ship itself, but a mechanical device sent ahead for reasons unknown. And then we see a metal ball bobbing in the waves. So scientists investigate this. Uh, We see Basil Rathbone and Judy Meredith like watching a video, it seems that maybe what was sent to Earth was like a videotape from the security cameras on the alien ship. Hmm. And so what happens on the video they watch? Well, in the alien ship, there is the whirring of a great machine sort of tuning up. And we see two aliens, again, silent in the shadows. One of them produces in a an almost ritualistic fashion a helmet and then places it on the other one's head. And then the ship accelerates toward a red planet. And then Basil Rathbone looks away from the screen and he says, remarkable crash landing on Mars. And this is their SOS. We're obviously in touch with beings that have a very advanced technology. So there's a big meeting in a kind of auditorium. This is the one with the giant statue holding Sputnik in his hand, like Yorick's skull. Mm-hmm. And uh, Basil Rathbone says, basically, the aliens need our help. They have crash landed on Mars. They are stranded there. We are obliged to go help them out. 
it's a pretty good setup, actually. Uh, yeah. More in retrospect than I think in my actual experience of watching this portion of the film. I feel like there's a, there's a bit of padding getting to this point. But once we get there, it's like, okay, this, this, we've got a mission here. This sounds good. Uh, it was going to be like, we meet the space ambassador, but the ambassador's ship has crashed or something, and we got to go check it out. Yeah, there is a lot more padding to come. But in yeah. a way, it, like the premise makes sense. So they say there's the the spaceship Oceano, which was originally planned to go to Mars on an exploratory mission. Rathbone's like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna uh, move forward the schedule. We're gonna turn this into a rescue operation, and the time is now. And obviously, John Saxon must be thinking, I was not ready to eat all of this exobiologic food. I want my Earth meatloaf. I want my Earth waffles. Mm-hmm. But they blast off. Uh, so the rescue mission is on the way. It's a bunch of footage here of rockets you know zooming around and landing and uh being sent on the moon once we actually see the surface of the moon the footage is cooler again because i like the little uh, model set they they have this from the original uh films and uh once they're on the moon laura talks to basil rathbone she says you know i was hoping alan would be on my flight but he's like nope no can do we put you on different flights so laura is going to be on the first mission oceano one that is going now uh, Alan's going to be on Oceano 2, which goes later. And so there's a sad conversation about how they won't be traveling together and they embrace and uh, and then, uh, yeah, I guess they leave. So there's a launch and the crew of the first ship is Laura and then Paul, that's Dennis Hopper, and then Anders, who is the commander. And that does rhyme. Commander Anders reporting for duty. <laughs> I think it's Commander Alexander Anders. <laughs> So they have some kind of relaxed cutting up time on the ship. We uh, we talked about the scene where Dennis Hopper is like narrating his space stuff. And then Laura is saying, wow, you know, your your uh, your logs of this journey are so interesting. Maybe when you get back to Earth, you can have them published. You'll be that famous writer slash astronaut fella. But I think the scene could have used some punch up in the dialogue because I wrote down exactly what Dennis Hopper says that impresses them so much. This is it. He says, Mars is giving off a red coloring and is becoming more vivid as we approach. It suggests that there is a really deep oxidation of the planet's major substance. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, and uh, Hopper's character has has some better lines coming up, but this is he this does. is not one of them. Yeah. It sounds more like they're impressed at his scientific vocabulary. They're like, "Wow, he knows the word oxidation." <laughs> Folks, that's not what makes good writing, but come on. Okay. Uh, so we're just, we'll accept it to move on. Okay. Except the premise Dennis Hopper's character has a way with words. But on the way to Mars, they get hit by a quote sunburst, which I think is supposed to be like a solar flare or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, there is a, a burst of activity off the surface of the sun and their ship is damaged. And uh, they, uh, I don't know if this really changes anything. It's damaged, but then they get to Mars. They enter the orbit of Mars. Oh, they do have Dennis Hopper take, uh, quote, oxygenator tablets. And when he takes them, he's like, oh, there's a symphony playing in my skull, and it's not Brahms. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, 
feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The ship lands. There are some beautiful and eerie shots of the uh, the rocky red landscape. And uh, Anders and Paul put on their spacesuits and they go out to explore the crash-landed alien ship. Now, at this point, there is a powerful resemblance to the later sequence in Alien of exploring the, the stranded ship on LV-426. And I think I would not be at all the first person to, to notice this. People have pointed out that in some ways aspects of alien might have come from planet of the vampires but aspects of alien may also have come from this right mm-hmm. yeah i think i think i saw that, that harrington also commented on on it at one point i mean not in a mean way or a, a spiteful way or anything but i mean you just it's part of the legacy of, of sci-fi horror uh the, the the threads that connect these films are are stronger than in other subgenres. i think Yes, and there's good sound design in the scene, like the scene uh, kind of warbles and hums while Anders explores the ship and Dennis Hopper looks on from outside. Now, first of all, Anders finds a dead humanoid alien in the pilot's chair, and then we cut to a newspaper headline, which was jarring to me. I thought it was funny. (laughs) It's like, single dead astronaut found on spacecraft. Mystery deepens. (laughs) Well, you want to read the rest of the story, right? The headline served its purpose. Yes, if a newspaper said that, I would want to read it, assuming it was not like the Weekly World News. Mm -hmm. 
But they figure out what's going on. Basil Rathbone deduces that the other alien astronauts must have boarded a, quote, rescue rocket. And so they ejected from this ship before it crashed and killed the, uh, the one uh, alien astronaut that remained on board. So Alan, that's John Saxon, and Tony, you remember Tony from the meal earlier? They make a case, mm-hmm. let's go on a supplemental mission to find the rescue rocket, and they're going to land on the Martian moon Phobos. Basil says, you are either fools or very brave men, but he in the end approves, and they go. So they arrive in orbit, uh, they make contact with Dennis Hopper on the radio, and there's a lot of, oh, Alan wants to talk to Laura, oh, she can't talk right now, oh, now she can talk, okay, he's calling. <laughs> Uh, so again, there's a little bit of padding in this, but around this part of the film, we're, we're getting to the point where the movie really begins <laughs> There's about an hour in, yes. uh, I feel like everything starts coming together and, uh, it becomes, becomes very watchable and, and, and pretty good in places. I agree. So they're on the moon Phobos and they, they were supposed to be just using this moon as like a, a sort of a, a launching pad to get to the planet. But out of the window of their ship, Alan and Tony see something in the distance, and it is the rescue ship, the other ship from the alien ship. So they go to investigate. Inside, they see a silhouette illuminated in the light from a door. It's a humanoid figure, but then she collapses. So they carry her back to their ship, and it's a woman. She's dressed in a red jumpsuit. She has green skin, and she's wearing a helmet that looks kind of like a cathedral uh, cupola. Mm-hmm. Or kind of like a Zoltar machine also. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a well-designed spacesuit. Like it feel it's obviously a spacesuit, but it feels a little bit alien. It feels it, it, it has a good uh, visual flair to it. So there is a moment where they have to decide what to do because now it's the two of them and this uh, and this alien uh, rescuee and their ship can only carry two people. Uh, They need to launch and go meet the other Earth ship, uh, but they can only go with two people. So they flip a coin to determine who goes with the alien astronaut and who stays behind. John Saxon says, all I have is paper moon money. (laughs) And the movie keeps you in suspense for a while about who's bringing the astronaut to the other ship. Uh, We see them walking through a dust storm on the surface of Mars, hunting down the, the main ship's beacon, and eventually they collapse. But finally they are found. Dennis Hopper brings the alien inside and uh, they look at her and Laura remarks, wow, she seems so human, yet not human at all. And Paul says, I know it's uncanny. It's like what would have happened to us if we'd been in another atmosphere. And then suddenly Laura remembers to ask, wait, Paul, who brought her? But there's no time to answer. In walks John Saxon, her space fiance. He was the one who came. So he's okay. Now there's a whole thing that's kind of a side story about confirming that Oceano 2, the other ship, will be able to come back to Mars to rescue Tony, the guy who was left behind on Phobos. So actually, Tony really gets the better deal here, considering what happens on on the main ship. Uh, So uh, let's see. Yeah, now it's Alan, Laura, Paul, Anders, and the alien lady, and they're all on the ship together, and they're going to blast off. Now, what comes next is, I would argue, the best scene in the film. It's the scene where the alien ambassador wakes up. She wakes up in the chair, and then she makes eye contact with the crew members, one at a time, starting with Dennis Hopper. She looks at him, and her face goes through these subtle changes, and she smiles, and she has these little flares of expression in her eyes, and this gradually inflating grin as she looks from astronaut to astronaut. 
except she doesn't smile when she sees Laura. She she looks at Laura and then suddenly exhales, uh, kind of sharply, leaving a blast of fog on the inside of the glass of her helmet. And, uh, ooh, this scene was uh, chilling and very interesting. And Florence Marley is wonderful with the little the little tiny expressions. Yeah, absolutely. Like th- this is the point in the film where yeah, we're really off to the races here. We have a we have a strong cast. Uh, we have a a limited and understandable set. We know where we are and uh-huh. what the immediate stakes are. Yeah, here it kind of turns into a different movie where before it was like all about blasting off and landing and blasting off and discussing what to do and then blasting off and blasting off again. Uh, Now it's basically a bottle episode. It's just some characters stuck in a ship with something that is acting a little strange. Yeah. Yeah. Like at this point, it could be like a really interesting episode of the old Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or something. So first they put Dennis Hopper in charge of taking care of the alien lady, and he shows her how to drink water through a straw. She has some water through the straw, but she is not interested in food. Like, she turns her face away from the exobiologics. And Anders wonders if uh, perhaps she is used to some sort of liquid nourishment. The whole time, by the way, she is just making eyes at the Earth dudes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, and also we see that when her helmet is off, she has a sort of onion-shaped troll doll hairdo. I couldn't help but wonder if this is a nod to uh, Bride of Frankenstein, Hmm. Um, you know, given, uh, certainly given uh, um, Harrington's appreciation for the work work of uh, James Whale. That she has tall hair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't put that together. But uh, so, also, well, that's another performance that is uh, wordless, but relies on uh, powerful facial expressions. Uh, Elsa mm-hmm. Lanchester as, as the Bride of Frankenstein. But so after this, they try to take a blood sample. Anders also wants to do this to run some tests, but she will not allow it. She smacks the needle out of the dude's hand. Mm. And then we cut to later that night. Dennis Hopper is making some notes in his audio log, and he says he thinks he's noticed something about the alien that the others haven't yet. He says she has, but then he trails off and he doesn't finish the sentence. And I want to know what was Dennis Hopper going to say? I know this. I thought this was one of my favorite acting moments in the entire movie. It was just like, just the, the fact that he trails off and he doesn't finish the thought. Like it's just it works so perfectly for this character and for what's about to come. Now, he's sitting there by himself while everybody else is asleep, and he notices an open doorway, and he goes to investigate. And the alien ambassador is not in her seat anymore, so he goes wandering around alone looking for her. This kind of reminded me of the scene in Alien where, like, Brett is looking for the cat. Mm -hmm. And Dennis Hopper stumbles into the engine room, and there suddenly she appears, I wasn't sure about this. I think is she in her alien way supposed to be nude? Like you see her back and it is green. She's not wearing her red jumpsuit. Uh, but maybe she was wearing, maybe she had like green clothes on under that. And that's what it's supposed to be. She's obviously actually wearing something in the scene, but it's the same color as her skin. Yeah, I wasn't sure. And there's another scene where it makes it seem like maybe the back of her costume is more exposed in the front. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure on that. Well, anyway, there she is, 
Something has changed about her. Now she has lights glowing in her eyes, and she seems to hypnotize Dennis Hopper. And she walks up to him. She lays a hand on his chest, and her skin appears to have a shiny, almost polymerized texture. And she leans in, and we see only from like the perspective of like from behind her. And it's like, is she kissing him or is she biting his neck? Mm-hmm. Next morning, people wake up. They discover Paul dead. Dennis Hopper has left the building. What a shame. What a shame. Such a nice character. Yes. Um, So his wrist has a bloody ragged wound and he appears to have been drained of blood. And they find the alien ambassador sleeping with blood dripping out of the sides of her mouth. So there's no mystery about what happened. It's just like, oh, okay, here she is. She drank all his blood. Anders says, do you see how heavy she's breathing? She has gorged herself on blood. And now she's digesting like a boa constrictor that swallowed a whole animal. It's fascinating. (laughs) And then John Saxon goes, fascinating. It's horrible. We ought to destroy her right now. Now, come on, Alan. Come on, Alan. He's just admiring her purity. That's all that's going on here. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Ian Holm. Yeah. Yeah. So, So it's a conflict. Anders thinks, you know, she's much too precious to destroy. In fact, he does go somewhere interesting. He says she's not even necessarily aware that she's done anything wrong. This leads Mm -hmm. to like an argument about whether or not they because they can't converse with her that she never talks. So they argue about whether they should assume that the alien knows it has done something wrong by killing a human or not. Mm hmm. I think that's that's a great question for a sci-fi story. I can't recall if I've ever heard that being discussed before. Like, should we hold the alien morally accountable? Yeah, this is, this is a, a movie where the mission statement does not call for a lot of philosophical pondering. Um, and yet there's just a little, it, it dips its toes in a little bit right here, and it's nice. Anders makes some kind of interesting arguments. He says, you know, maybe this alien comes from a planet where it feeds on the blood of of other organisms and uh, and it doesn't think there's anything wrong with that, much the same way that we eat the flesh of other organisms. So is her, t- might she understand having drank Dennis Hopper's blood the same way we would understand eating a steak? And then Alan, uh, so that's an interesting point. And Alan responds by saying, but we don't feed on blood. <laughs> I, think the, I think the philosophical dispute is going a bit over John Saxon's head. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. understand that it's not literally what the substance is that matters. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's pissed, but everyone seems to agree thus far. They need to check back in with headquarters and not do anything drastic. Right. So they come up with a, a workaround. Anders says, OK, we're going to feed her from our medical supply of blood plasma and we keep her drinking that uh, so that she doesn't drink the blood from our bodies. And that works for a while. Yeah. Yeah. The basic understanding is like she, if she's not hungry. She's not a threat. They make a report to Basil Rathbone about the blood drinking uh, and it shows Basil Rathbone back at mission control. And he just like puts his head in his hands, which made me laugh. <laughs> And then I think he walks over to the wall and he says, uh, he like looks at a map of the stars and he says, one should not be shocked by anything we find out there. And I'm like, man, you could imagine so much weirder forms of life than something that drinks blood. That's like Mm -hmm. something that a lot of Earth life does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it shouldn't be really that that shocking. But but I don't know. I I do kind of like it as this little flourish that, uh, you know, puts you in the the space of this, uh, you know, really kind of like an old fashioned pulp sci fi where like the rest of the solar system is wild, baby. You don't know what's out there. Right. Could be teeming with all sorts of weird life. 
life forms you can't possibly imagine. This one drinks blood. This next one has three eyes. <laughs> so they hold a funeral for Dennis Hopper. They blast his body out the airlock. The funeral includes readings from the Bible. Yeah. And there is a discussion between John Saxon and Anders. John Saxon says, should we tie her up? Anders says, no, nah, no, nah, we'll, we'll be safe as long as we never all fall asleep at the same time. And John Saxon's like, well, but there was no sign of struggle. And uh, Anders says, well, she must have gotten to him in his sleep. Yeah, they, they bring up the uh, vampire bat as an example. Right. They say, yeah, OK, so it, vampire bat can feed on animals without them necessarily detecting. Maybe she has something in her saliva that dulls the pain of the bite and thus you don't know when you get bitten. So they feed her a bunch of blood plasma. She drinks it through a straw until, ooh, they run out of blood plasma. That's a problem. So next thing, there is a very creepy scene. Again, I thought this one was really effective. Anders is alone in the control room, awake while everybody else is asleep. And he, he clearly is tired, but he starts looking at the door of the room. And was that a silhouette there? Although it's not there anymore. Oh, but there it is again. And it's backlit, but it's like a, the it's a female silhouette and she's approaching. The eyes are glowing. He drops his ray gun and then there's another blood feast. Yeah, it's a good sequence. A, a, a nice buildup of tension. And, you know, and, it, and it's especially I, I thought it worked well because, you know, that this guy is toast. Like he's yes. he's not John Saxon. He's. He's not Alan. He's not Lara. Uh, he's going to get killed by the space vampire at some point, and yet it still feels it's still a tense uh, sequence when it occurs. Agree. I really like that. Like, he, is he seeing her or is he not? Uh, mm -hmm. Thing that that makes it, it, it tense. So now only Alan and Laura are left, and so they, they tie up the alien while she is asleep and digesting. They conclude that she must work by some kind of deadly hypnosis, and here is the scene I mentioned earlier where they call Basil Rathbone to be like, hey, everybody's dead, and he turns to the guy next to him and says, things are going very badly on that ship, very badly <laughs> indeed. They are not having a good day up there. So the alien lady wakes up, discovering she is restrained, they've tied her up, and her eyes light up and she somehow turns her skin hot enough to burn through the ropes. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some sort of like laser vision or, or her skin's heating up. But yeah, she burns through the bonds and now she's free to move around the ship and find some more of that sweet human blood. That's right. But I think it's implied that she is only interested in man blood because mm -hmm. we see her shadow pass over the, the body of sleeping Laura, but she doesn't go for it. She just walks right past. And then uh, Laura wakes up and she looks around and the room is very still and she doesn't hear anything. So she gets up, she walks around, and then she suddenly catches the alien in the act of drinking John Saxon's blood. I guess he got hypnotized off screen. There's a brief fight and Laura injures the alien. She like scratches her in the fight and the alien begins bleeding green fluid and she screams and runs away. John Saxon wakes up. He's all right. And uh, then they go to look for the alien and she has collapsed on her bed and bled to death from only a tiny scratch. John Saxon concludes that she suffered from hemophilia. He says perhaps she was some sort of royalty, a queen maybe. And this is referring to royal hemophilia on Earth that I think was a, a heritable trait that in many ways was related to, uh, I think, Queen Victoria and her husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's also some examples in um, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the Russian royal family as well, if memory serves. 
they may have been related to Queen Victoria somehow, I think. I'm not sure. I think you're right. I just looked it up. I think uh, Tsar Nicholas's wife, Alexandra, was Queen Victoria's granddaughter. There's a lot oh, of... Oh, there you go. They're all, you know, mixing and matching European royalty. At any rate, the end result is that our, our queen of blood here is is a glass cannon. She, um, the, the slightest little scratch is enough to cause her to, to bleed to death. And, uh, and there she is, dead on the ship. Seemingly like it's kind of a freebie. Now we're done. The alien menace has been defeated. Right. So they land back on Earth and John Saxon and Laura are waiting, I guess, to be uh, retrieved from the the capsule they're in and whoops oh we just discovered that the alien here left a bunch of eggs in a cabinet <laughs> pulsing slime covered eggs very cool looking and john saxon concludes she was a queen a queen bee she came here mm-hmm. to deposit all of her eggs so they could hatch and take over earth and John Saxon wants to destroy the eggs. Laura says, we can't do that. Scientists will need to study them. She's arguing for their preservation. And then uh, when Basil Rathbone runs in the door with all of the <laughs> science dudes, uh, John Saxon takes him aside and is like, hey, listen, I've got something secret to tell you. We've got alien eggs all over the ship. We've got to destroy them before people find out about them. And Basil Rathbone is like, oh, my dear boy, no, we must study them, not destroy them. <laughs> Yeah, he suddenly has just all the 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 vim and vigor in the world, just yeah. uh, just scampering onto the spaceship here to check out those alien eggs. Nobody's wearing a contamination suit or anything. No. They're like, let's just go get them, get big handfuls of these things. He really perks up here at the end with the <laughs> eggs. I have to say that the eggs. When we first see the eggs, I thought they looked hokey. They looked mm-hmm. like they look like little pulsating red balloons. But then eventually, we do get a close up of them as they're being taken off the ship on a tray. And in the close-up, they do look really cool. They look, mm. they look gross and pulsating and looks like there's something inside them, you know, implied there's some sort of form there that is developing. Uh, so uh, uh, ultimately, great job on these eggs. They are on a tray. They're on like a, a, a quarter sheet baking pan. Mm-hmm. Like there are going to be some cookies or something. Yeah. And that's pretty much the close of the film. There's that's a close it, up yeah. on the eggs, the end, ominous music, because, you know, ultimately this is, I mean, it's it's ultimately a darker ending than, uh, than, than Alien because, oh, you've brought them back. And now who knows what's going to occur? Well, I think we do get Alan and Laura. They're like, oh, we're back on Earth. I love you. You know, it's yeah. uh, we can feel the sunshine on our faces again, I think they say. Well, that that is true. They do like having the sunshine back. But I don't know how long they're going to get to enjoy it. I don't know what, right. how long it takes these eggs to develop into whatever they're going to grow into. I'd say I'd, I give Earth like 20 to 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> or they're just the blood bags are all drained. So there you have it. Queen of blood. Uh, like I say, I feel like the last 30 minutes or so of the picture is, is pretty solid and pretty fun. Um, I'm not sure I would have gotten to those last 30 minutes had I not been on a mission to watch this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess I, you have to think about the original context of the release, right? I mean, this was something that was going to be shown theatrically. The shown is part of a double feature. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not something where you had to worry about keeping somebody on the same TV channel or keeping them, you know, uh, watching a film on a streaming service or anything like that. So it's, it's a, a, different, a different mission statement for this film, for sure. Yeah, I wonder if this was mostly destined for drive-in theaters or not. I uh, I, I imagine so. Yeah, very much a, a double. I forget what the the film it was released with as a double feature, but it was part of the double feature. Hmm. 
I also wondered, like, to what extent did they study, like, how people watch these films of those double features? Did they did they think about things like when will the teenagers be making out? And, yeah. <laughs> and like, what should be going on in the screen at that time? I, I, I've, I've never read anything on that. Yeah. Was it a calculated decision to take an hour to get to Florence Marley? Yeah. But at, at any rate, I will, you know, coming back to Curtis Harrington, uh, you know, I feel like he, he did, given the, the weird limitations of this film, you know, having to use all of this footage from uh, from from Soviet cinema um, and, and so forth, obviously not having a huge budget. Uh, I feel like uh, like the, the end results uh, work amazingly well, given those constraints. I feel like the the cast does a great job, given what they're they're given to work with. So it is kind of a, an interesting exercise in um, in in overachieving for for uh, you know, a, a B picture like this. Totally agree. Yes. Uh, and despite the fact that it is overused and there's too much padding, I will emphasize yet again, the, most of the Russian footage does look pretty beautiful. I like the aesthetic. Yeah, it would be interesting to come back and, and watch. Maybe, I don't know if we would watch one of these, but uh, there are a number of these Soviet sci-fi films uh, that I would be interested to look at more. I think there's one called Planeta Burr that uh, that may have been utilized in Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. I think I've seen that one uh, in full. Uh, there's um, there's like a whole box set of these. I think they have them at Videodrome here in Atlanta, and I've rented one or two of them in the past, but uh, I, I don't recall them much. I think I just kind of had them on in the background. Well, let's rent them again. We, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, we'll go ahead and close it out there. But uh, hey, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on Queen of Blood, on Space Vampire, films and media in general uh yeah right in uh let's talk about it uh we have our listener mail episodes on mondays in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed core episodes uh, on tuesdays and thursdays on wednesdays we do a short form artifact or monster fact and on fridays we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on weird house cinema if you want to see a complete rundown of the movies we've covered over the years here for weird house cinema uh go on over to letterbox.com it's l-e-t-t-e-r-b-o-x-d.com we have a profile there our profile is weird house and we have a list of all the movies we've covered so far and sometimes there's a peek ahead to what's coming up huge thanks to our audio producer jj posway if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, 
There's joy in every journey. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.